In his book, Chase the Lion, Mark Battison shares, shortly after being installed as the 20th pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. I didn't make that up. Just in case you're wondering. If he tagged his name onto some church. Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a sermon in November of 1954 titled Transform Nonconformists. The Christian is called upon not to be like a thermometer conforming to the temperature of his society, said King, but he must be like a thermostat serving to transform the temperature of his society. I have seen many people who sincerely oppose segregation and discrimination, said King, but they never took a real stand against it because of fear of standing alone. Are you willing not just to stand, but to stand alone? On December 1st, 1955, a transformed nonconformist boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus just five blocks from the pulpit where King delivered that sermon. When the white section filled up with passengers, the bus driver ordered Rosa Park to give up her seat in the color section. Rosa politely refused. She took a moral stand by remaining seated. Our mistreatment was not right, Rosa said. I was just tired of it. It wasn't a physical tiredness. It was a moral tiredness. The only tired I was was tired of giving in. Rosa Park stand against racial segregation started a ripple effect. It led to a court battle, which led to a citywide boycott, which led to the Supreme Court ruling segregation unconstitutional. Until the pain of staying the same becomes more acute than the pain of change, nothing happens. This is indeed the exact pain Martin Luther and the rest of the 16th century reformers felt, the pain of things staying the same. They were tired, to put it quite frankly. They knew that the Western church was doing to people was simply not right. They were selling salvation to people. In church, there is nothing more horrific than pastors in churches who twist the scripture consciously to feed their people spiritual poison for their own spiritual gain. Martin Luther and the rest of the gang were willing to stand alone if that's what it took to bring about a reformation. Sometimes you have to take a stand even in the face of opposition because sometimes some things are worth standing for. They were not only willing to stand alone, but take hold of the doctrines that stood alone. Understand that Martin Luther them decided not to be a thermometer. Instead, they decided to be a, a thermostat and change the atmosphere of their day. And Martin Luther them took hold of these doctrines that stood alone. The doctrines of, of, of the Sola doctrines, the five doctrines we've been studying for the past two months. 
Now, this word sola in Latin for alone, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, this, this word sola in Latin means alone or only. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola Christos, on the basis of Christ alone. Sola fide, through the means of faith alone. Sola scriptura, as taught with the final and decisive authority of scripture alone. And these doctrines, like Rosa Parks, are unwilling to give up their seat and move to the back of some random, unnoticed place of the church as man gets all of the glory for himself in salvation. Instead, the reason these doctrines must remain in their place and in the front of our minds is because of this last doctrine we're studying this morning, sola de gloria to the ultimate glory of God alone. Uh, Church, I came to tell you this morning that God refuses to give up his glory seat to anyone else, and he will turn heaven and hell over before he allows mankind to be the central focus of his creation. So if you ask, why grace alone? Why faith alone? Why Christ alone? Why scripture alone? So that God may receive the glory alone. He alone deserves the glory, right? No one else deserves the glory, right, church? Certainly man does not deserve the glory for his salvation. Who is hopeless and in his sin and has no way of saving himself and is therefore doomed and condemned to hell? Mankind is. But God acts on our behalf in great grace, making us alive by the death of his son. Jesus takes on the wrath of God so that we might take on the mercy of God. So to put it quite frankly, God is the author and finisher of your salvation, and he doesn't ask for the slightest help from you. Therefore, he deserves all of the glory for your salvation. Why is it so hard for us to rest in the fact that salvation is not our doing? Why is that so hard? Why is it so hard for us to come to the grips with the fact that we can do nothing to save ourselves? Why do we struggle with these sola doctrines? I think to fully answer this question, we must deal with two things this morning. What is the core desire of the human heart? And what is the core desire of God's heart? What is the core desire of the human heart? And what is the core desire of God's heart? Now, we're going to talk a lot about glory today. Therefore, I want us to be on the same page when it comes to this word glory. A lot of you may got a lot of definitions on what glory is. And so we ought to get on the same page here. I thought it would be fitting for all of us to get on the same page. So what does glory mean? Moses wanted God to show him his glory. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. What do you mean, Moses? Show me your glory. What are you asking? Out of all the things you could have asked for, why did you ask God to show you his glory? 
Isaiah saw angels flying around talking to one another, going back and forth saying, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What do you mean, seraphims, when you fly around the throne of God and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What are you talking about? What are you conveying to us? What do you mean when you say glory? The word glory in the Greek is kabod. I know I'll be struggling with with, with Greek. I struggle with English as well. But I'm so thankful for grace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When I think of all the words I've messed up, I thank God for his loving kindness towards me. Anyways, back to scripture. The word glory in the Greek is kabod, meaning weight or splendor of God. So when we say glory, we are talking about the weight of who God is, the weight of who he is. And that's heavy, church. That is very very, very heavy, the weight of who God is. When something blows our mind in the urban vernacular, we might say, wow, that was, that was heavy, bro. That was like very, very heavy. Like I can't wrap my mind around it. Like that what you just dropped on me is like, like super heavy. Like I can't even digest that. that. That is just huge. Or when we see a famous person, some of us lose our mind. Come on now. You think of that famous person that you love. You know you lose your mind. It may be Chance the Rapper. It may be Brad Pitt. It may be Taylor Swift. Hey, it may be Denzel Washington. But uh, look, 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 look. It's like, woo, Lord. I'm in church, though. Bring me back down, Lord. Bring me back down. But there's something about this famous person that makes their presence feel weighty. However, there is a heaviness about God. There is an incomprehensible reality about him that makes him heavier than us, as if we are feathers on the scale in comparison to the heaviness of God. When we experience the glory of God, we are, are experiencing the weight of who he is. He is so weighty, he would crush you if he gave you all of himself at one time. Many of you think that you want to see him in all of his glory. But if God was to put all of his glory, all of his being on you, it would crush you. You would say, that's enough. I can't take it. It is just too much for me. So God gives you a little bit of his glory at a time because he would crush you. In fact, he will kill you with the weight of who he is. Your soul would be overwhelmed with the weight of beauty, expanse, and wonder that is pressing upon you. God desires for us to experience the weight of who he is. Just think for a minute. If the Grand Canyon is jaw-dropping, if the ocean you love so much is breathtaking, and we haven't even begun to consider the human body, or the endless reaches of space, 
I mean, can we just pause for a minute and think about this? God created all of that. And if you're like me, when you consider all that he has created, I say to myself, I need to get my worship life together. I'm not worshiping him to the degree that he is worthy to be worshiped. If the creation is all that in a bag of chips, you know that the one who created it is far better than that than he has created. God loves his glory. God loves his glory more than you. God loves his glory. He loves who he is. God has no issue with himself. Now, you have issues with yourself, and you should. If you looked in the mirror, you should. All of us, including myself. But God has no problem with who he is. And God loves to showcase his glory so that he can satisfy our hearts. Let me say that again. God loves to showcase his glory, that is, showcase the weight of who he is to your soul so that you are satisfied with all that he is. God wants to satisfy you with all that he is. However, we must understand this. Mankind likes to compete with God's glory. It's almost laughable. You see, as humans... We like to showcase our glory also. This is the core of all human desires. Therefore, we are at war with God over being center. It is this competition between us and God to be the center of the universe. We want people to feel the weight of who we are. And modern day technology affords plenty of opportunity for this. YouTube. Instagram, Snapchat, and reality TV are all full of short and quick pictures of human beings flexing or trying to show off, but you're not that impressive as you think you are. And if you slow down and listen close enough, you can sort of hear the brokenness in human beings crying out for someone to notice us, to recognize the weight of who we are. And some of us cry in subtle ways through manipulation and playing the victim role. But make no mistakes, we want to be center. And how long does this little flickering moment of our glory last? For seconds? For days? For some of us, maybe years as we move from significant to insignificant, from from influential to irrelevant? and impactful to inconsequential. Here is the fundamental reason why we hate the solar doctrines. Because there is no glory in them for us. The fundamental reason why we hate the solar doctrines is because there is no glory in them for us. Moreover, it is glory in them that we can't compete with. 
The weight of God's glory is manifested in the solas, and the human heart looks at them and says, I don't have anything to do with my salvation. I don't have anything to do with getting saved. That's not fun. I don't want that. There's no glory in that for me. There's no boasting in that for me. I don't want that kind of God that takes all the glory away from Dexter Harris. Now listen to Jesus as he is dealing with unbelieving Jews in his earthly ministry. Watch how he diagnoses the root of their unbelief. Jesus cuts to the heart of why mankind does not come to him. It is not a lack of evidence. It is not that the Bible doesn't convict. It is not that Jesus isn't infinitely beautiful and infinitely satisfying and infinitely good. Jesus says this to the unbelieving Jews. Now watch this. This is in John uh, chapter 5, verse 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Right? Let's read it again. You can't believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. The underlying issue of why we can't believe or put our faith in Jesus is because we're too busy, too occupied with trying to receive praise from one another. What is Christ saying? They can't believe. They can't come to me. But why? What's stopping them from having faith in God? They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him heal the blind. I mean, my gosh, he raised up the dead. How can you not come to a God like that? Why would you not come to a God like that? It is only one reason and one reason only. You are after your own glory. You look at that and say, he's turning water into wine. He's raising the dead. He's speaking wisdom. I never, I can't compete with that. How are you supposed to, I'm supposed to compete with that? It's like me trying to go up against LeBron James. It's just like, I don't want him to come here. You know, the guys already think I can play basketball really good. But if LeBron James came in the building, I won't look that good. Let me repent for a minute. The reason they won't come, it is because they love the glory of man and not the glory of God. The reason they will not come is because they love the glory of man and not the glory of God. That line right there is so crucial. Heaven and hell is at stake right there. Which are you drawn to? The glory of man or the glory of God? What causes you to run in the morning? Is it the glory of God or is it the glory of men? They want it to be praised by mankind. And if we are honest this morning, if we can pull our chair up at the same table this morning, it feels good being the center. It feels so good to be thought much of. It's, it's tempting. It feels so good to be lifted up by your peers. If we're honest this morning, we do not desire a life that is laid down to make much of God. 
I by nature want a life that makes much of Dexter Harris. Listen, no one willingly comes to God while seeking human praise. No one comes to God while seeking human praise. Now, some of you in this room may think you have come to God, but many of us come to God because of what? So that he can give us what we need in order that we may gain more praise. That is not salvation. When you come to Jesus as a means to something else, that is idolatry. But when you come to him because he's not a means to something else, but he is an end within himself, that's what you call praise and worship. What is the fundamental problem of man being made center? What is the issue here? What is the problem? What is the danger in man becoming center? The same issue on that bus with Rosa Park. It is an overinflated view of us that makes us think we are better than we really are, resulting in unreasonable views that don't result in the glory of God but more sin. When we as mankind become center or think that we're center, we, be having, we have an overinflated view of who we are. And we are wicked when we become distractions from God. The most evil thing that you can do in the world is distract people from God. Why? Because God is the only one who can truly satisfy people. And you are a disappointment at the end of the day. And so when you say, look at me, look at me, look at me, and pulling people's attention away from God, you are not loving them. You are not loving them. We cannot satisfy anyone, nor can we satisfy ourselves. We are left hopping to one thing to the next, trying to recreate that amazement, that feeling, that joy. You know what it is, right? From one club to the next, from one man to the next, from one woman to the next, from one car to the next. One of the things about not being satisfied in the glory of God in the way that you know that you are not is discontentment. You're never content. You're always looking for something. You're always seeking for something. Nothing never satisfied. You got the promotion. You're still not happy. You got the house. You're still not happy. You got the car. You're still not happy. You got the kid. You're still not happy. You got the Jordans. You're still not happy. Why? Because nothing can satisfy you outside of an all-sufficient God. Period. When we live for our glory, The end result is we are tired and worn out. Let me illustrate this through a French chef. For over 100 years, Michelin has not only produced high-quality auto tires, but also the premier guide to fine dining. (laughs) Achieving or losing even one star in Michelin's restaurant's rating can have a dramatic effect on the success of a restaurant. One famous French chef claimed, Michelin is the only guide that counts. That's why the restaurant world was shocked when Sebastian Barres, one of French's most celebrated chefs, declared that he wanted to drop from Michelin's rankings. For over 20 years, 
Barres has been honored with the three stars, the highest rating Michelin restaurant judges called his food spellbinding. Oh, I want a meal like that. Where is spellbinding? After I get done eating, I can't have enough of it. But in September 2017, Barres said the pressure to perform was too much. Barres announced Today, at 46 years old, I want to give a new meaning to my life and redefine what is essential. He said his job had given him a lot of satisfaction, but there was also, watch this, huge pressure that was inevitably linked to the three Michelin stars first given to the restaurant in 1999. He asked to be allowed to continue his work with free spirit and serenity away from the world of ranking without tension. Barris says, maybe I will be less famous, but I accept that because here's the reality, friends. It's too much pressure trying to satisfy man day in and day out. It is hard trying to impress people every single day. It is hard trying to do God's job. Some of us in the room are tired because you keep trying to impress people. Fake it till you make it. You keep trying to live up to people's standards and do all that you can do to be loved and accepted. And it seems like the more you do, the less it counts. Because the reality is is that you were not made to live for your glory. This has been the issue since the fall, has it not? Man has been trying to take God's place. Remember the snake told the woman? God don't want you to eat that fruit. Why? Because God knows that you'll be like him. But the reality is, is that mankind can never be like God. Satan wants you to feel like you can be like God. That you can do this on your own. That you can live this life by yourself. That you can lead your family in victory by yourself. That you can get through your anger and bitterness and frustration all by yourself. Satan wants you to believe that you are God. And many of us will not say that, but we live like it. And it is destroying us. And we are tired. And we are ready to crack down the middle because for too long we have been trying to be in God's shoes. But God has not called you to walk in his shoes. It is Satan's biggest trick. Come on, you can be like God. But salvation in contrast says you can't be like God. Jesus is most valuable, not us. You see, salvation is engineered to put you back in your place. God has designed salvation to destroy human boasting. God has designed salvation to destroy human boasting. Oh, we're about to get personal. I'm coming straight to your house this morning. You see, friends, we may not see it, but we really can't handle the weight of being God. And nor will he allow us to be. This is why God has engineered, constructed, designed salvation in such a way that man will not get any of his glory. So that there will be no boasting in the room. There is not a drop of glory in the gospel for you, not even a bit, not even an inch, not even a centimeter of glory for you in his gospel. The gospel tells you 
Everything you do is worthless. On your best day, you are filthy rags. Offended yet? Mad yet? You feel that? On your best day, filthy rags. There is no righteousness in you. You are a helpless little worm. Don't you call me no worm. Spurgeon says, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. Do you see it? You are rapidly being moved out of the center. Are you okay with that? What happens when we are moved out of the center? No human praise, no human glory, no being exalted over the heavens. Some of you think that heaven should stand at attention because you brought your cute self to church. You feel as if time should stop because you brought yourself to church. You think that God owes you something because you started living the right way. But scripture says that no praise belongs to you. All human glory is diminished in the sight of the gospel. God says that all humans are like grass. God's salvation says loud and clear the, to the entire world, you need me. You need me. Hear that in your soul. You need me. God's dependent on no one. You need me. Every day you wake up. The breath that you breathe, you need me. You need me. Before you were, I was. I didn't need anybody. I could have done without. I did not create out of need. I walked out on nothing. I spoke to nothing. But when I was done, there was something. My raw material is nothingness. I never been dependent. I never call on you. That's why I make you go to sleep every day so that I can remind you I'll run this universe well and without you. I don't need anybody. And what you need is not another man or another woman or welfare or business or church or quick prayers or boyfriends or girlfriends. You don't need a bigger house. You don't need a bigger car. You need bigger glory. You need more weight. You need more truth. You need more of God. That is what you need. How about we slow down for a minute there? Because we clap about that, right? We don't need anything else. All we need is God. I wonder if our lives reflect that. Because many of you, more of your problems will go away if you realize that the thing that you're chasing is not the answer. God is. God is. God has in Jesus silenced any human boasting. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. In fact, if you have your Bibles, go there. I want you to see this. I know it's on the screen, but if you got your Bible, I want you to go there. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 to 30. I'm going to wait for you to get there because if you don't see this, you may beat me up. 
when you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say wait a minute. All right, you're glad the Holy Spirit is in us and we have the fruit of patience. We're going to wait on you. All right, I got some more amens in the room. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, things that are. Why? Here's the reason. When you see that word so, this is purpose. So that no human being might what? Boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ. You see where God is getting that. He wants to take away your boasting through the gospel. Now watch this. You don't have to go here, but Romans 4, 2 says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Not before God. If Abraham would have been made righteous on the basis of what he had done, God would have owed him. It would not have been grace. It would have been a wage. When you go to work and you work for something, somebody is not giving you something. You earned that. You give me my due pay. I work for that. Don't let me show up on Friday and my check ain't there because there'll be some furniture moving that day. I want what belongs to me. But when it comes to grace, you ought not boast. You you ought not look to yourself because you didn't earn that. That was given unto you. So you can't boast about what you did. You have to boast on the one who gave it to you. You see, the only people who boast about their righteousness are those who think they have earned God's favor. If you boast about how good you are, you don't get the gospel. You just, you just don't get it. I mean, you just missed the whole thing. You just missed the whole thing. If you're bragging about what you overcame and how you did it, and a lot of, uh, let's slow up, a lot of our Christian songs and a lot of stuff that we hear on Christian television has a lot to do with human boasting. A lot to do with shake my haters off and, 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 and I'm stepping into the new me and blah, 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 blah. But God says, what you boasting about yourself? You ain't even did nothing. You ain't did nothing, cuz. Seriously. You see, in these solas, we get the blueprint of God's salvation. As we study the blueprint, we begin to realize we didn't have anything to do with our salvation. We realize how lost and how needy we were. And therefore, we come to grips with the fact human boasting is foolishness. In fact, let me give a short description of the solas again, so that we can be reminded of we have nothing to do with our salvation. Scripture alone, all authority comes from God's word alone. Grace alone, unmerited favor, not us reaching up to God, but God reaching down to us. We were dead at the bottom of the sea. You were not floating in the ocean, waving your hand, saying, God, help me. Jesus, he dived into the sea of sin and grabbed your dead corpse from the bottom of the ocean, brought you to the shore, and he breathed life into you. You were dead in your transgressions and sin, and God made you alive. All that passion, all that love that you have from God came 
came from God. It didn't come from you. You wouldn't be caught dead loving God and worshiping God and lifting up your hands and sacrificing your life and looking out for the poor and doing all of these things for the glory of God. That didn't come from you. That came from God. And I don't know about you, but often I got to pray to God. Please, God, don't help my heart. Help my heart not to be callous because I'm so prone to run from him. But every time I run from him, the Bible says I got an anchor for my soul. Every time I drift, he's pulling me back. Every time I want to move, he's pulling me back. Every time I want to run after something that's not for me, he's pulling me back. He's an anchor for my soul. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I'll wake up an unbeliever tomorrow. But there's an anchor. There's something holding me there. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alone. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient payment for our sins. Here is our substitute. His righteousness is imputed to us. It is money in our account. We are and were bankrupt, but he, he is wealthily beyond imagination. We overcome by the blood of his life. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Now you tell me, how in the world do you boast in that? How in the world do we get credit God's design of salvation is the antidote to the toxicity of human pride. Perhaps another, il- another illustration would help. I got a picture up on the screen I want to show you. That's you. Now, some of you like, I ought to walk out right now. I have been insulted in all of my life. I know when someone's talking about me, I'm no dummy. But according to the National Geographic website, the pufferfish can inflate into a ball shape to evade predators. Also known as blowfish, these clumsy swimmers fill their elastic stomachs with huge amounts of water and sometimes air and blow themselves up to several times their normal size. But these blow-up fish aren't just cute. Most puffer fish contains a toxic substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. The toxin is deadly to humans as well, 12,000 times more deadly than cyanide. There is enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans, and there is no known antidote. Like pufferfish, human beings can blow themselves up with pride and arrogance when we lack the understanding in God's design of salvation. This pride can become toxic to our marriage, to our church, and to our friendships. But when we understand how we are saved, it brings us back down to actual size. And I'm so glad that God has delivered unto us a gospel potent enough to deal with human pride. When we understand that it is grace alone, our pride shrinks just a little bit more. When we understand that it's faith alone, we shrink down just a little bit more. And when we understand that it is by Christ alone, we shrink down just a little bit more. When we understand that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has saved us alone and not our good behavior, God brings us back down to size and we see God as he actually is, no longer smaller than us, but bigger. 
bigger than us. And that's how it ought to be. God ought to be big in your sight. If he's too small, you got the wrong God. You need to check the God that you're worshiping. Because if the God that you're worshiping is weak and undeveloped, you got the wrong God. Because God ought to be bigger than your situation, bigger than your circumstance, bigger than you, bigger than your job, bigger than anything else. God ought to be bigger than that. And when the truth is preached, when the gospel is preached, churches are healed, marriages are healed, sin is repented of. If you ever get the gospel down, it results not in more sin, but less sin. It causes you to want to fight your sin. In fact, it gives you strength to say, I can fight this sin because the only sin you can overcome is sin that has been defeated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the church gets the gospel, love begins to grow. We begin to to love the marginalized and oppressed. We begin to look out for the interests of others instead of ourselves. This is the result of the gospel. This gospel changes our core desire from being all about me to being all about him. And here is some of what we have heard in this church, even from people hearing the gospel and taking hold of it. Ladies calling the church saying, I don't know what you're doing to that man, but whatever you guys are doing, you just keep doing it. Single moms, as we minister to their teens, are inboxing me saying, I don't know what's going on up at that church, but whatever you're doing, you keep doing it. He's been more respectful. He's been more loving. And all I'm thinking in the back of my mind is the power of the gospel. Dex, I've been living for me, but now I want to live for God. How can it be prideful people now humble because the gospel turns us from sinners to saints, from haters of God to lovers of God? How? By giving us satisfaction in real glory, in real weight. That is how he transforms us by satisfying us in him. Let me slow down real fast because I really want to spell this out for you because this is helpful. All right. This is helpful to help you overcome sin. You're struggling with sin in your life. You got something that you can't beat. Let me tell you what you need to do. Sin lies to you. Sin tells you that it will satisfy you. God on the other end says, I'm satisfied. Right? The more you drink of God, the less desire you will have for sin. So it's not, let me beat this sin up. It's not, let me drink more of Jesus. And the more of Jesus I get, the less of the world that I want. Christ has to be sweet in order for the world to be bitter. They both can't be sweet. But as you exchange Jesus for your sin, he becomes bigger and better and stronger in you. And that's how he breaks the bond of sin by satisfying you so that the next time you taste that sin, you say, that sin ain't as good as I thought that it was. I have something better than you. You told me you were satisfied, but I tried something better than you. So many people are trying to fight their sin in their own power, but it is coming to grips with who God is. So satisfying that we say, sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. And therein is the point of it all, church. God alone wants the glory. Sola de Gloria. Church, God has carefully and strategically woven into every fabric of salvation his glory. And as you consider every stitch, there is not one thread of human glory. 
so that when he clothes you in his righteousness, your garment will read sola dei gloria. This is why we sing, my Savior can move the mountains. He is mighty to save. So what is foundational in, in the ultimate purpose for why God saves us? This is what I want to answer. What is the ultimate reason? Why, what is the ultimate? What is, what is at the core of God saving you? Is it because he loves you? Yes, but it is not ultimate. Is it because he wanted to remove your sin? Yes, but it is not ultimate. The main reason God saved you is that he might showcase the glory of his grace through an undeserving people. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Watch this. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Watch this. To the praise of his glorious grace. God saved you so that you would praise him on the basis of his grace. Do you remember in Egypt when God delivered the Israelites? The, the, yeah, the Israelites. Why did God deliver them? According to Exodus 14, 18, it says, and the, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. That whole story is about the glory of God. Why did, why did Jesus in the book of John allow Lazarus to die? They came to him, right? Your friend Lazarus is dead. Jesus let him die. Now, this is the same Jesus that can speak from a distance and people be here. Why are you going to let your boy die? Right? If you my homie, if we cool, we like this, we locked up, right? We cool, right? And, 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 and you find out that I'm going to die and you have the ability to heal. Why did Jesus allow Lazarus to die? He says this in the book of John. He says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. God will let you go through something in order that he might get the glory out of it. You think that your situation is about you. You think that your circumstance is about you. You think that your salvation is about you, but it's not. It's about his glory. God doesn't do anything without his glory in mind. Everything that he sends you through, every pain, every tweak, every turn, every promotion, he got one thing in mind. I'm going to get some glory out of this. I'm going to allow her to go through it for the sake of my glory. And until you understand that God is orchestrating the universe for the end of his glory, you're going to be messed up for the rest of your life until you understand everything is moving towards his glory. When he heals the blind, he says, feel the weight of me. When you gaze out at the ocean, he says, feel the weight of me. When you look at the human body, he says, feel the weight of me. 
And when you consider all that I am, my self-sufficiency, my eternality, my omniscience, my, 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 my power and my might and my hand to deliver from hell and Satan and the devil and to cause you to rise up from life to death, feel the weight of who I am. And when you ask God why, he says, for my glory alone is why I do it. Church, God is passionate about his glory. But let me end on this note. God is passionate about his glory. But you know who else ought to be passionate about his glory? His church ought to be passionate about his glory. Those who have been born again ought to be passionate about his glory. Those who stand on scripture alone should be passionate about his glory. Those who believe in Christ alone should be passionate about his glory. There ought to be something different about believers. They ought to change the atmosphere. I think those people who are saved by God ought to be thermostats and not thermometers. Thermostats at their jobs. Thermostats in their community, thermostats in their school, thermostats at the local coffee shop, thermostats in the hood, thermostats on the corner, thermostats at the barbershop, thermostats at the meal. We ought to be changing the world for the glory of God. Moses felt some of his glory, and he and, and, and what did he do? He led a whole nation out of captivity. Joshua tasted his glory, and what did he do? He led a people to the promised land. King David experienced his glory and danced down into his underwear. The disciples walked with his glory and changed the world. They were thermostats. However, however, that was them. Today's question is, what about you? Are you a thermometer or are you a thermostat? When you leave this place, are you going to be a thermometer and conform to the world? Or are you going to be a thermostat and change the world for the glory of God? And what kind of church do we want to be? We want to be a church for the glory of God. The most important thing in this building ought to be the glory of God. I wish I had husbands in the building that wanted to see their families change for the glory of God. I wish I had women in the building that wanted to see their families change for the glory of God. I wish I had singles in the building that wanted their lives to count for the glory of God. I wish I had a church that wanted to see Gary, Indiana turned upside down for the glory of God. Worship team is coming back. As a church, we want to exist for the glory of God. And this is where we are going. If you're here for your own glory, I encourage you to get off the bus now. We are headed to a place for the glory of God. And come next week, we are going to start a new series. And we're going to be talking about the next steps for Bethel Church as a whole. And I encourage you to come back next week. I'm not going to talk to you about it today. But we're, we got some big news that we're going to share next week, and we're going to be talking about the next steps for Bethel Church as a whole. But know this, that we're going for the glory of God. Let's stand to our feet and worship this God again.